Uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we will uh, begin reading in verse 13 and actually read down through verse 3 of chapter 2. Let me ask that you stand as we read God's Word together. Therefore, preparing our, your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times For the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And the grass does wither. And the flowers do fade. But the word of the Lord does indeed stand forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, would you be at work in this your word and use it to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, so there's this thing that, that, that people do. Some people do. Not everybody does it. I've seen Nancy do it a lot. A lot of you probably do it too. Uh, you, you meet a newborn baby. And you hold said newborn baby. You don't cradle it all. You hold it out. And then you do this thing where you look at the child and then you look at the parents. And then you look back down the child and you look at the other parent. You're trying to figure out which one does this child look like. You're, you're, oh, he's got... He's got your eyes, but he's got your nose. You do this whole dissection thing where you're, you're like comparing. I can see the parents in the child. That's, that's a thing. I mean, we know that children will, to some extent or another, look like their parents. Or that, that children, to some extent or another, will act like their parents. They will pick up traits and mannerisms and 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 uh, attributes and characteristics of mom or dad or both 
somewhere along the way. Uh, we know that children look like their parents, may even act like their parents. In fact, that's sort of the whole point of Hank Williams Jr. song, right? All that crazy wild living, I'm just carrying on a family tradition. We know that like father, like son. We know that the apple doesn't fall far. We have idioms for this. We know that children are supposed to, we expect children to look and act in some way or another like their parents. Well, Peter's telling us here that that's not just true in physical families. It's also true in the, in the spiritual family. It's also true in the household of God, as God's children, we should bear resemblance to Him. Now, if you, if you know your children's catechism, uh, who is God? God is a spirit. Or what is God? God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like men. So we, we can't push that illustration quite that far, right? But we should bear the family Resemblance. The first thing Peter shows us in this passage is that there is such a thing as a family resemblance. And let me warn you now, because people inevitably, um, my, my uh, preaching professor, Frank Kick, who is um, not all that long after I graduated, went home to be with the Lord, um, always warned us, never use your short, shortest point first. People get excited. People think that, oh, sweet, this is going to be a quick... Um, I'm using my shortest point first, but bear with me. Uh, there is a family resemblance. Look at verses 15 and 16. You read in verse 15, but as he who called you is holy. Don't miss that word as. In the same way that the, the one who has called you is himself holy and grounded in that we too are to be holy. And, and if you read verses 15 and 16, there's a lot there. There's a lot of instruction and command for us to be holy. But that's because our Father is holy. It's because the one who called us is holy. In fact, Peter actually quotes from Leviticus. Not the passage we read, which is pretty close but he quotes from Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. Or he may actually be quoting Leviticus 19, 2. It doesn't matter. They're the same. Leviticus tells us, Be holy. You shall be holy. For I am holy, God has said to His people. Holiness, quite honestly, is a, a major theme, if not the major theme of the book of Leviticus. Maybe if we remembered that, it would be easier to actually get through it. Uh, Leviticus is usually the point where people's read through the Bible in a year plan dies. Uh, maybe if we remember, this is a book about my and my need for and my uh, holiness, then um, maybe we would get through it a little better. But what does it mean to be holy? You picture white robes. A gold halo. You picture, you know, we sort of have this notion that 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 holy means. I mean, like we almost kind of picture this chant, like somebody completely untouchable and and like completely different. That that's really not 
the context at all. Sinclair Ferguson actually uses this um, description um, in his book, Devoted to God. He, he compares holiness to those old uh, marriage vows that say, forsaking all others and cleaving only to you. And he uses that as a, as a description of what holiness really is. Absolute, permanent, exclusive, pure, irreversible, and fully expressed devotion. You and I are called to fully express our devotion to God, forsaking all others and cleaving only to Him exclusively and permanently and purely in an irreversible relationship with a holy God. What would the life of a believer look like if we fully expressed our devotion to God in light of the world around us? How would it affect the shows that we watch? How would it affect the way we vote? How would it affect the 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 way we treat our neighbors? How would it affect the, the way we drive our cars? How would it affect the way we go to school and be students? How would it affect the way we work and do our jobs? Would we care more about our own peace and comfort than the needs of others around us? Or would it be the other way around? We're called to be holy. We're called to be set apart from the world around us. In fact, he, he actually makes that connection in verse 17 um, because he reminds us, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. As long as we are exiles on this earth and our citizenship is in heaven, our citizenship is in the new creation, our citizenship is in the world to come, then we should feel like exiles and we live as citizens of the world to come in this world. There is a family resemblance. We're called to be holy. We're called to bear that family resemblance. But I also want to remind you something because Peter does it in this passage. Not only is there a family resemblance, but it's a family resemblance. It only applies to people who are in the family, the order of things matters. You don't go to the hospital and, and visit this, this newborn child, you know, born yesterday. You're in there with the parent. I guess it's COVID. You can't do that anymore. But humor me, right? You, you don't go in and then start saying, oh, man, he looks just like the couple I passed on the way in the front door, uh, you know, on the, my way to the elevator. Or, man, he looks just like the nurse down the hall. We don't ever do that. We're always making the comparison to family. Why? Because you bear the family resemblance. You bear the family marks. There is no family resemblance for people who aren't in the family. And, and Peter makes this clear. Notice verse 13. How does he begin? He begins with a therefore. Okay, look, every preacher has to do this. Every time we preach a passage with a therefore in it, you have to listen. It's like a rule. 
right? The standard question when you see a therefore is to ask what the therefore is there for. Like, why is it there? Well, because it's connecting the, the commands that come after it to the things he's already said. The Bible never gives us imperatives without first giving us indicatives. I went to worship and got an English class. An imperative is just a command, a structure, an instruction of some sort. Clean your room. That's an imperative. Right? Take your dishes to the sink, rinse them off, put them in the dishwasher. That's an imperative. Pick up your socks. That's an imperative. An indicative describes what you are. It describes something true about you. And Peter has already walked us through, reminded us of the gospel. He's reminded us of God's love for us in Christ. Yes, there's suffering in this life. Yes, there's, there's conflict and trouble and persecution in this life because we're exiles. But that doesn't change our status. It doesn't change the truth about who we are, that we belong to Him. And Peter's already reminded us that, that the reality that, yes, we face that trial and struggle and persecution, but we do so grounded securely in God's love, proven to us through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The Bible never gives an imperative without first giving you the indicatives. It never gives us commands to follow without first telling you, you are new. You are not who you once were. If somebody ever asks you, give me an outline of, and then they insert one of Paul's letters. Give me an outline of Ephesians. Give me an outline of Colossians. You, the short version is, well, the first, some, depending on the book, the first some number of chapters, indicative. The last some number of chapters, imperative. That works for almost all of Paul's letters. We never get the imperative without the indicative. In fact, let me do this. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. Let me show you this. Even in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 20. Those of you that aren't there yet... Maybe you, maybe you know where you're going. Maybe you don't. Um, Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. Probably the chapter of the Bible we think of as the most, for obvious reasons, command-filled chapters in all of Scripture. I mean, we've got a whole list of Ten Commandments, of Ten Imperatives. Do this, don't do that. Right? And it's in that context. I want you to notice verse 1 and 2. Verse 1 and 2. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Ten Commandments begin with an indicative. You have already been delivered. Now, therefore, live like this. That's the Bible's pattern. And that matters because even that communicates to us, we don't earn God's favor by our goodness. 
it reminds us that we don't earn God's favor by our obedience, by our actions, by the way we live and the way we talk. No, we do those things because we've already earned, because we've already found, received God's favor. In other words, yes, there's a family resemblance. But it's only for those who are in the family already. And Peter doesn't tell us to be holy without first reminding us that we're already new. We're already new creatures. In fact, look at verse 18. We see this again in verses 18 to 21. Because having, having, having introduced the passage with a therefore, connecting this be holy as I am holy to the previous passage, he then comes back, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Knowing that you've already been redeemed, knowing that you've already been paid, bought in full, that the payment has been made completely and fully and finally, knowing that the debt that you owe has already been paid and satisfied completely. So that even the be holy is grounded in the fact that we've already been ransomed. We've already been redeemed. You, you read on those glass bottles. Kind of got imprinted on the glass bottle. You know, in certain states you can take it back to the store and get a dime. In some states you can take it back to the store and get a nickel. They're, they're buying back the bottles. They're redeeming the bottles. They're paying what they have to pay to redeem. And then the word redemption might even be on the bottle itself. We're not redeemed with money. We're not bought with silver or gold. Peter reminds us we've been bought with something that's imperishable. The very blood of Christ. You don't, you don't buy back those guilty of cosmic treason by writing a check. You don't, you don't redeem those who are guilty of, of treason against the, the, the three-in-one creator sustainer of all the universe by you know, pulling out money from your pocket and, and starting to, you know, lay it in somebody's palm. You know, the, the debt that had to be paid, the, the payment that had to be made was bloodshed. Verse 19, the, the precious blood of Christ, like a, a lamb without blemish or spot. He was the spotless lamb that bought our freedom. His death means our life. And so, having been redeemed, having been adopted, having been given a new heart, having been given new life, having been brought into the family of God, which the first half of chapter 1 tells us, only then does Peter Remind us, call us, instruct us to bear the family resemblance, to be 
holy. Yes, there's a family resemblance, but it's a family resemblance. It's not a a command or instruction for people who are outside the household of faith. You don't become a Christian. You don't come into the family of God through your actions, through your goodness, through your own merit. Yes, there's a family resemblance, but it's a family resemblance. Lastly, Peter calls us to cultivate that family resemblance. Have you ever watched children? Every now and then I've had this kind of, I'm, I'm easily distracted like this. So you get into conversations like with a dad and he's got this four-year-old son standing right next to him, right? And, and you're talking to this dad and right next to him, this four-year-old son is staring at his dad. And you watch him and he's, he's watching and he's trying to mimic how his dad's got his hands in his pockets and he's looking at his dad. How's he standing? What's he doing? Like he's, he's actually working to mirror his dad's mannerisms. And it's terribly distracting to me because I can't talk to the dad because I'm so focused on, okay, this is really cool. This four-year-old is doing everything he can to mimic. He's completely ignoring me. And all he's trying to do is to look like his dad, to, to carry himself and to stand and to do all those things just like his dad does. Not every family likeness comes automatically. Some of them actually take a little bit of work. Some of them take effort on our part. Look at verses 13 and 14. Now, I'm, I'm, it doesn't take much to look around the room and not see a lot of long flowing robes. Everyone wearing robes down to the floor, you know, right down, dragging the ground as you will. No, none of you are doing this, right? But, but this is what Peter has in mind. Because everyone was doing this when Peter wrote verse 13. Peter does it right, preparing your minds for, for action. He writes, girding up the loins of your mind. The, the long flowing road, if you're ready to run, if you've, got to, if you've got to run a race, or if you've got somebody steps into the store and robs the store and you're going to chase them down, you can't run with those robes. So what do you do? You gather up the hem, you tuck all those robes into a belt, then your legs are free and you can chase that robber. That's what Peter's saying to do. Not prepare your minds to act, you know, for action just sort of generically. He means actually gather up that long hem of your robe of your mind and tuck it into the belt in your mind because you're getting ready to do something. You're going to work. You're going to run. You're going to labor. You're going to exercise. You're about to put forth some sort of effort. That's the language of verse 13. Gird up the loins of your mind. He tells us to be sober-minded. It's literally sort of self-controlled. It's that, that idea that we're not controlled by wine. We're not, we haven't lost the, our faculties. We haven't lost our ability to, to think straight or make decisions or to understand or to embrace or to do. But our heads are cleared and the loins of our minds are girded up. There's a phrase I wish we could bring back. You don't hear that a whole lot today. 
we're maintaining control of the of our minds and 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 girding them up, preparing them for action. And with that self-control, we set our gaze on Christ. But not just on Christ, on His coming again. Notice verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Wait, hold on. I'm holding a Bible. It tells me about Jesus. He's already been revealed. That was His first coming. There's a second one. That's the one Peter's looking to. That's the one Peter's telling us to watch for. Turn your faces futureward to Christ's return. Set your eyes, set your gaze there. Set your hope there. You know, it's, it's really easy to get distracted or frustrated or scared or depressed or conflicted or whatever if all we ever watch is the news going on in this world. If this world can get our eyes off of Christ's victory at His second coming, then it will be doing exactly what it wants to do. Perhaps for every gaze at social media, for every gaze at Fox News or CNN or MSNBC, we should take a couple at the return of Christ. (laughs) The one great world event that matters more than any other is the return of Christ. When He conquers all of the rulers, all other kingdoms, and sets Himself up as King fully and finally and completely on this earth. In other words, what Peter reminds us in verses 13 and 14 is, it actually takes effort. It takes work. It takes energy. It takes preparation for us to grow in holiness. Simple application is, you know what? We've told our, our teenage kids as they got older and older, we, we, we cared less and less how, much they, how late they stayed up on Friday night. We care how much they stay up on Saturday night. Because this is the most important activity we any of us engages in throughout the week. It's even as simple as, well, if I know I'm going to have a hard time in the morning, I go to bed earlier the night before. I set out my clothes. And, I, and there's all sorts of ways that we sort of give that effort, that planning, that preparation that goes into a longing for holiness. The reality is we want our sanctification. We want our growth in grace to come passively. Uh, my freshman year of college, I uh, fell asleep on my biology book. There was, there was a piece of um, biology 111 that I was struggling with. And I tried to stay up late to get it. And I didn't get it. At least I don't remember if I got it or not. But I fell asleep on my biology book. I do have this distinct memory waking up the next morning thinking... Okay, sleeping on the book didn't help. Like, like osmosis, learning by osmosis from your school book, you're not going to learn algebra 
sleeping on your algebra book. I've tried. It doesn't work. But that's how we want our growth in grace. That's how we want our sanctification. We want it to come sort of passively and easily as though it doesn't require me doing anything. We don't want to work for it. We we aren't working to gain God's favor. We're working out of God's favor. And yet we have this notion, I shouldn't have to work at all. It should just happen. Like I should just be able to sleep on the Bible and that, that should work. I can get it through osmosis. I mean, that's part of Paul's point, even in Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You know, there's, there, are, there are circles of Reformed Presbyterian types out there in our kinds of circles who would tell you it's wrong to say anything about ought or duty or requirement, or command, or you got to. or they, they would tell you it's wrong to ever say anything like that. And yet here, Peter's telling us, be holy. He reminds us, not just of our justification, but of the work that we do for our sanctification. Yes, our justification is safe and secure in Christ. But it's out of that new standing, out of that adoption that we are called to live lives to bring honor and glory to Him. One writer even said, because God's love is the source of ours, the message of His love is what kindles ours. Because God's love is the source of ours, in other words, we don't love first, He loves us first, but the message of His love is what kindles ours. And that's exactly what Peter writes in, in verse 23 to 2-3. To he reminds us that we've been born again through this imperishable seed that is the living and active and abiding Word of God. And that same Word is what brings us growth. Apparently, newborn children have to grow. Like, apparently, that's a thing. And, and apparently, there's a growth chart. You go to the pediatrician, and they have a chart. And they keep track of where you are on that chart. I want to go back to those days. I need somebody reminding me. It's good for you to be gaining weight. It's good for you to be eating lots of food. It's good. Children are supposed to grow. And you feed them. So that they grow. You want them on that chart. And, and that's the one chart. Well, it's that in, in school, right? That in grades. The only two places where, you know, above average, we're like all about good. They're taller than most and they're heavier than most. That means they're healthy. That's the illustration Peter uses. Like newborn children who are dying to drink some milk. That's not just how we were born anew, but it is. God's Word is how we were born again, verse 23. But it's also how we grow, chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. He's, it's, a, it's a metaphor. Don't push it too far that the Bible is milk. It just simply means newborns crave milk for growth so we too, in that same way, 
we should crave God's word for our growth, that we may grow up into our salvation. The same words that bring us life are the same words that grow us. The message of God's love gives us new birth. The message of God's love grows us as his people. Yes, there's a family resemblance, but it's a family resemblance. And we're actually instructed to cultivate that family resemblance to be that four-year-old who's looking at his dad and going, I want to stand and put my hands in my pocket just the way he does and, and use the same kind of mannerisms he does. Let me make a couple of applications from this passage first. This has implications for grace covenant, by the way. Um, this means because the, the word of God gives life and because the word of God grows us, it means that Grace Covenant is going to be a word-centric church. We're not going to like watch the latest Barna research poll and find out what the latest, greatest fad is and figure that out. And then we're going to get on that train and follow it until it dies in a couple of years and find the next latest, greatest. We're going to commit ourselves to being word-centered for our ministry at Grace Covenant to be grounded in God's word because this is the very tool Peter tells us here, Paul tells us in Romans 10, this is the instrument by which we are born again. And this is also the means by which we grow in grace. A second application. Um, if we are regularly absent from the place where God's word is, we shouldn't expect to grow. If we're regularly absent from the place where the, where the, from the means of grace, the place where God's word is regularly read and proclaimed, we shouldn't be surprised when we, when our growth sort of stymies, when it sort of begins to, to weaken. Third, uh, this passage reminds us that if you're not, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, uh, you can't make yourself better. You can't be holy. The, in fact, the command to be holy is for you only in the sense that it reminds you that you're not and you're looking for someone else to stand in your place. Look to Christ. He is holy. He is and has been holy so that we can be declared righteous in the sight of God. Look to Him in faith. And only then, once in the family, then the rest of the instruction, the command, and the cultivating of our holiness is for you. Look to Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. And you too will be saved. And lastly, let me make this observation. Because Peter... Peter makes a connection between God's word and love uh, for other people. Uh, verse 22 to, verse, to chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, it's connected to our love for each other. You know, the world around us tells us all you need is love. What the world needs now is love. Sweet love. Is that how the word love? Sweet love. I think that's how the song goes. It tells us over and over again, we just need to love each other. Well, here's the thing. 
Our love for each other can't make anyone else love people. You loving someone else can't make that someone else love anybody else. True Christian love can be shown by our actions, but it isn't transmitted by our actions. We can show love by a hug or by some act of kindness, but we can't cause other people to love through those actions. Only God's word can do that. Only the word of God can give us, can change, can change us, can draw us out of our selfishness into deep abiding brotherly love for each other. And so we look to God's word, not just to make us lovers of others, but to change us, to root out of us our selfishness, our pride, our deceit, as he warns us in verse one, so that we may might more and more resemble Christ, our older brother. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would make us people who love, uh, who love your word uh, and, and are hungry for it, uh, that it might change us, that we would love Christ our Savior and long to be where he is and to develop fellowship and friendship with him, that we would love other people and that you would, by your word, root out of us malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And that you would make us people fully devoted to you. To the honor and glory of Christ. And for, for our good and for the advancement of his kingdom, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.